Hello and welcome to Coverage, a podcast for professional painters by professional painters. I'm your host, Craig Bunting. I began my career as a professional painter. Now I work for Benjamin Moore as Director of Professional Marketing in support of Pro Painters. In this series, I'm checking in with some of the best in our business. We're going to hear their stories, things we can learn from, things that make us laugh. Let's get started. Well, hello, everyone. While I'm here with Nick Slavic, one of my favorite people in the industry and somebody who I've just recently met in person, but I've known for, for quite some time. Hey, Nick, how are you? Oh, Craig, I'm always good. And any opportunity to do this with you is a big thing. So thank you. Thanks for that. So if there may be a few people out there who may not know who you are, there's not many left, but <laughs> I'm sure there's probably a couple. <laughs> so you can give me some of the background on, on, on you and, and that'd be great. Yeah, the the high level elevator pitch is, you know, the old man forced me into uh, servitude to the family business at 10 years old, between 10 and 18. I, I did what most people do in a family business, work like a dog. Uh, from 18 to 22, I did active service in the United States Army, uh, went to Afghanistan, Iraq, got me some GI Bill, came back home, got a business degree with a double minor in two forms of accounting. Uh, I then found out my father didn't really have a place for me in the business, no plans for the future. So I started my own business and we're going on year 15 of Nick Slavic Painting and Restoration Company. And maybe about five or six years ago, I started the Ask a Painter live show, uh, the weekly live Facebook show where I use all that experience to talk about the life of a trades entrepreneur and a master craftsperson. Wow, thanks for that. And thank you for your service, Nick. You're very, very good at retaining talent and employees, right? So one of the things that I think many people struggle with in this industry, and really most industries these days, is retaining retaining talent, right? It's a transient, much more transient workspace now than it probably was, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago. So how do you go about, what's the, what's advice could you give some folks out there who maybe aren't as, as good at retaining a talent, attracting new talent and keeping it? Yeah. The, the unsatisfying answer to that, Craig, is that the more professionalized you are as a business, the less problems you have with recruiting, training and retraining, uh, retaining labor. So if you have all those mundane, unsexy kind of boring things like job description, pay scale, review process, employee handbook, um, and, and a training process, uh, people find comfort in that and they will come to your business more than others. And it's not just a flashy sign on bonus or, you know, these company events, social events, like Honestly, the people that we know, Craig, that have the largest, most professionalized businesses have the least amount of uh, problems recruiting and retaining. And that's the, that's the unsatisfying truth. They think we have some trick or some, some thing to get people in. We don't. No, that's, it's a great answer. It's not at all unsatisfying. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we both sit on the PCA board. I know you're the, you're the vice chair and very, very passionate about education in the industry. So you talked about training as being a component of, of what you, you know, what you have and what you use to, to get your people uh, fulfilled and, and keep them. Can you talk to me a little bit about your training program? How do you, how do you do that? Nick, are you borrowing the content from somewhere else? Have you developed it yourself? How do you, how do you run them through it and how often do you do it? Yeah. Like, like anybody else, I borrow from everybody. Great. And I didn't come up with all this stuff on my own. Like, obviously we combine it in a, in a unique way and put our own kind of spice on it, but the PCA has got great resources. Uh, there's lots of other people that have good resources and it's simply having a really good value proposition backed by the trust of the person coming in. So, um, last, last year I did about five rounds of recruiting. I'm, I'm the main recruiter in the company. Um, and I was getting diminishing returns as the year went on. If I'm being completely honest, we started off pretty good. And then I was putting in more and more effort and getting less and less results. 
finally to the point where in December, I was just like, I was having like this existential crisis of like, maybe everything that we're doing is not great anymore. Maybe we need to change. And because of that, I basically just surveyed the land looked around at what people were doing and I'm looking at all the, you know, the great resignation stats and uh, people in droves leaving work and people thinking about work differently and after the pandemic. And I honestly changed a lot of what we do to recruit, which was I, I just created a video of me on my farm on this beautiful morning with frost in the trees where I just said, listen, people think about work differently now. And honestly, there's a lot of bad employers out there. And when I look at your resumes and I see people job hopping, I used to think that as a bad thing. Now I see that through different eyes of saying, you know what? You probably were at some bad employers that didn't care about you. And I basically made a, um, a value proposition saying, instead of telling them what they must do to get in my company, I told them, listen, I will break myself to earn your trust and we will develop the living heck out of you. And I will work as hard as I possibly can to keep your trust. So here's the value proposition. We have super high standards, but if you come on in six years, you can go from making 36,000 to about 72,000 with health insurance, retirement, four day work week, um, PTO, all that other stuff. You meet our standards. We will develop you. It's going to be a match made in heaven. And we actually hired and <laughs> trained 13 people based on that <laughs> recruiting campaign. And, uh, it was an overwhelming success because we were saying what everybody was thinking at the time. Wow, that's that's super interesting. I mean, I think it's it's pretty unique that you're you're able to offer that that comprehensive of a package. How many employees do you have now, Nick? Yeah, so we're at about uh, twenty six full time year round painters. We have about ten part time painters. We have a leadership team of seven, and we have about six subcontractors that we use. Oh, awesome! So I know you know it's Nick Slavic's painting and restoration, right? So I know you're passionate about uh, Victorian homes and some restoration projects, and that's something that you know I think is pretty pretty incredible. Can you tell me a little bit about that and and how one goes about learning that craft because it truly is truly is a craft. Yeah, and you know in the in the age of hyper specialization and niching down and all the great things that they teach you in business school and honestly if if somebody said I'm starting up a business uh, painting business now I would probably give them the advice of yeah probably start hyper focused niche down but the problem is I've been around for 30 years and I love it all and I don't think restoring a Victorian house is all that different of a skill set than doing super high end fine finishing inside houses. I believe it's all a mindset and not a technical skill. So I actually like having this thing in, in an age where every consultant that would look at my business would say, listen, Nick, you're doing about eight different things that you need to get rid of. You need to find one specialization. <laughs> I've actually found it adds a huge amount of value to my young people because there is not a single young, happy person that we dragged in here outside of the trades that doesn't look at a Victorian mansion restoration in awe. And we hold that out as the high standard of what's possible. So yes, we do a bunch of cabinets, we do a bunch of trim, we do a bunch of other stuff, but we hold that out as if you really want to master this craft, that's what's out there for you. That's awesome. What, what percentage of the work do you think you do falls into that category, Nick? Is it is it a little bit and you kind of put your best on it or is it maybe more than a little bit and you've got more folks involved? Honestly, we're probably do only maybe 10 to 15% of our work is true old fashioned historic restoration. And, you know, I always get jealous of your guys market, you know, over in New Jersey or Boston or New York and things like that. There's a there's a much different demand uh, amount 
and then people who are willing to undergo those things. So in Minnesota here, you know, we'll go up to, you know, Summit Avenue where all the big grand mansions are, but you don't often get an opportunity here. And it would be very tough to base a, a business our size solely on historic restoration, but certainly we're equipped for it. So we take every opportunity we can. You know, one of the things that I did want to ask you about, Nick, is I know you're a you're an avid outdoorsman from what I understand. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's it's something that I can do here in Minnesota uh, to involve my family in the outdoors. And, you know, we have long, cold, harsh winters and uh, I love the outdoors deeply. And it is a way to get your kids out of the house and do stuff. And I believe it's a um, especially now that business is progressing to the point where, you know, like, you know, Craig, our schedules are busy. We don't have large portions of our day where it's unscheduled or you have time to ideate right. or have third or fourth or fifth level thoughts about something. And now when I go out into the wilderness, it feels very gross to me to do a bunch of electronic-y stuff as well. So um, I, I don't do a lot of that stuff and it forced me to disconnect and I start having these rapid third, fourth, fifth, sixth level thoughts about things going on in my life. And the outdoors, not only is it super fun and a way to connect my family with something bigger, but it's been a great way for me to separate and force myself to have deeper thoughts about what we all do. It's been super helpful. Uh, that's that's fascinating because it's like you know, you go to get away from work to a degree, right? But it opens up your mind and gives you the ability to kind of think through things in an uninterrupted way is what I'm hearing you say, which I think makes makes perfect sense. How much time are you able to dedicate to that, Nick? I mean, it sounds like something that's really profound and you can kind of crack through some challenges while you're there. But of course, like you said, we're all buried under an avalanche of work and life and kids and family and all that jazz. So how much time do you do you get to get out there and get away from it all? Well, a little bit, and I'm working on getting more of it. So one of the big goals that I have for myself this year is actually abiding by the boundaries I put in my calendar because I'm I'm not unique in this, that we all have these starting and stopping points in our calendar every week. And sometimes we actually abide by them. And this year, I'm actually trying to abide by those starting and stopping points. So Monday through Thursday, 5 p.m., um, I stop work. I have a short transition to clear my head. And then it's stuff with the kids. And when it's nice out, we're outside. If it's not, it's Legos, it's games and things like that. And then Friday at noon, um, I, I stop working. Um, usually Friday morning, I do a little bit of fitness and Fridays are for the wilderness. So I take the dog out to some piece of state or federal land I've never been on and do some exploring. And then, yeah, Friday at noon, I'm done for the week and it's family time. And it usually involves some outdoor stuff when the kids get home from school. So, yeah. So it's a concerted effort, right? I mean, you have to take that time and, and really kind of hold yourself to it. Discipline and a very difficult thing to do. For, so good for you. For those folks out there who are going to listen to this and who are thinking, my gosh, that sounds great if you're in Minnesota, but what do I do if I'm somewhere else? Or how do I how do I hold myself to that that discipline schedule and give myself that time back for myself and my family and my, you know, my wellness and all that sort of stuff? What would you what advice would you give them to try to hold themselves to those parameters that you referred to? Yeah, obviously it has to be written down somewhere. So my Google calendar is my thing. It's on there. But that alone in years past, I haven't been compliant with. So I need a personal and professional accountability partner. So I have a coach. I have uh, three different accountability partners for different things. And the ultimate accountability partner, Toots, my wife. And she's the one that I asked to hold me accountable to that. So she lets me know every time I start bumping up against the rev limiter of pushing the limits on those things. So yeah, having not only having it written down, but then having people help you with it is the best way. That's the way I found. That's great advice. When, when, you, when you have this accountability partners or coaches or both, how would you suggest somebody go out and seek, seek someone to, you know, to kind of play that role in their life and their business? 
Oh, Craig Bunting. This is a thing that I've <laughs> I've struggled with for a long time because uh, one of my superordinate goals is to find a mentor. And I believe I have some candidates um, that are going to be coaches for now. Hopefully it turns into mentor. But I, I'm under the impression that a mentor is somebody that you look up to so highly that you will be devastated if you ever let them down. And that's the way that I think that works the best. Because if we just gather up somebody where we don't really care if we fudge the numbers or lie to them a little bit, that I don't believe is a good um, accountability partner, coach, or mentor. And yeah, so I'm actually in the process of trying to find that. But I would definitely find people that you would be literally disappointed with uh, if they knew you were lying to them about this stuff. And that's worked best for me. You're listening to Benjamin Moore's Coverage, a podcast for professional painters by professional painters. Now let's get back to our interview. One of the conversations that you and I were a part of in a pretty big room when we were we were at Expo was around, uh, you know, some of this and also around sort of that honesty with yourself and being able to admit that, you know, you do have shortcomings and what they are and then how to address them. Um, so I know you, you know, you not already a great panel. We had some fantastic people speaking on the subject, but not everybody who's going to hear this was there. So any thoughts you could throw real quick around um, how you kind of like break through that, you know, that head trash, if you will, get to that honesty about yourself and what your challenges are and how to address them. That's not an easy thing for people to do, right? It's not easy to admit you have faults or, or shortcomings or weaknesses, but I think you did a really good job of articulating exactly how to approach that. So if you would, just a couple minutes on on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm a firm believer that, you know, we are painters. We are purveyors of paint and painting. And it's good for us to focus on that. But honestly, Craig, when we look over at this industry, the paint and the painting portion, honestly, if you ask me, is probably the lesser of uh, the concern. The bigger concern for me are the operators and the headspace of those operators and business owner and master craftspeople in our industry. So that's why I I offered to give a uh, panel discussion at our national expo about limiting beliefs, which is not something you would normally see at a painter's conference. But um, Jason Paris, who we know and love, who is also on the board with us, literally said our only competition is our own ability to execute our business model. And I believe that to be true. So what that means then is you need to fight with yourself and have these real conversations. Find a mentor to put you in an uncomfortable position so that you can address these things. And it's not easy. Like you said, if you have a true mentor, you have to be open to the idea that they will call you out on your BS and make you do something about it. And that is very uncomfortable. I personally happen to uh, react to that very well. I love those conversations and that might be a superpower, but that's, <laughs> I've got the biggest growth with those things. And particular in the last two years, uh, I've read the book Grit and it deals basically all with limiting beliefs and perseverance and setting big goals. And uh, I've seen the biggest strides in me and my team when we focus on the headspace um, and the, uh, the, the, the way we think about problems instead of just the technical problem ourselves. So it's near and dear to my heart. And I've seen monstrous gains in those areas when we focus on the things that hold us back, which are our own negative thoughts. That's great. So Nick, when folks are looking for a mentor or a coach, do you feel like it's critical that that mentor or coach knows the industry or the business that they're in? Or is it really a matter of personality and aptitude and the way in which you jive with that person? How would you how would you describe this? Is it a must have, a nice to have, or who cares? I don't have to know painting. This have to be a great mentor. How would you how would you characterize that? Yeah. Another another thing that I would consider an unsatisfying answer, which is it's all great. It just depends where you are. And uh, I think for people who are new to the industry, maybe 
maybe zero to five, maybe even up to 10 employees, it might actually be more beneficial to get somebody who has some industry experience um, that can actually help you with the technical things. Because in that stage of business, you are in the stage of professionalization, which is what, how do I get an employee handbook? What's a review process look like? What's a pay scale look like? What can you expect out of a project manager, an estimator? But the problem is when you have some of those things as solved as you can get them, what all you're left with is yourself. And, and over the last couple of years, I've gone from people specifically outside of our industry to bring in those new thoughts. And I'm part of a CEO group where we're in, uh, I'm in a room full of tech people, manufacturing, all sorts of other stuff, because I appreciate the industry and I tap the industry, but you got to look outside as well, because sometimes we can get too myopic and we're too close to it. And those outside influences can be just life-changing. Yeah, great, great advice. So in your, in your seven-person leadership team, as you mentioned, how does that come to be? In other words, are those folks that you've brought up kind of from maybe a, a, a position as just an ap- applicator or laborer, and they kind of grow into a leadership position? Do you find them elsewhere and bring them in? Do they have industry experience, all of them, or are they, are they a whole smattering? How do you approach building that team? The reason I asked the question before I, before I let you answer is, you know, I think this is one of the biggest challenges that people face is, you know, trying to establish a leadership team within their organizations that they can trust and rely on and delegate to. Right. So how did you come to get the these magnificent seven? <laughs> I love that. So honestly, I am I was turned on to personality profiling probably way sooner than I should have, but it has guided me. Uh, I got some great advice from people in this industry that said, it doesn't matter what somebody's rank or position or whatever is, or their tenure, you hire based on personality type and core value match. And that will always win over experience or tenure or anything else. So when you look at my team, um, I only have one person that I've brought up through the ranks from painter uh, onto the leadership team, and it it has way less to do than their painting with the with their painting experience. It has everything to do with their personality assessment and their willingness to lead. And uh, we have um, the rest of the people. My right hand, Holly, who's helped me build this business. She was a school teacher who was a stay at home mom for a while and wanted to reenter. You know anything? She wasn't looking for a trades job. She's never painted before in her life. She comes here and she's a killer. Um, my sales manager actually came from industry, uh, Andy, estimator Andy, as everybody knows and loves him. He actually ran a family painting business for 15 years and we followed each other on social media. He shut down the family business, moved his family here to join us and do this with us as our sales manager. And then, uh, yeah, we have Carly, our coordinator, who was just a college student uh, in construction management, uh, but just lived locally. Uh, She was actually, her family owns a brick laying company and she spent all her youth laying bricks. So she's she knows what hard work is and then uh yeah so basically we we hired a furniture salesman uh who is a core value match as our other estimator and we hired a food truck driver as our other project manager because again personality assessment match what methodology do you use for for the personality assessment nick and any advice you could give folks on on how they can leverage that too to kind of help you know dig through who they've got who they need and and assess those folks who they you know who they may be thinking about bringing on Oh, absolutely. So I started simple with like a a simple disc assessment, but doing that alone is not good enough. You got to find a Sherpa. You got to find somebody who can interpret those things because it's kind of like this 
there's if you don't know the ins and out of personality profiling, it feels like mysticism and tea leaves. Uh, but when you find the right person who has who knows the science of it, they can deconstruct it to the point where it sounds like a parlor trick. Like the guy who's my Sherpa, I can have somebody. I, I did. I pulled a trick on him because he knows people so well. He can describe a person just by their test without seeing them. So I did a trick. I said, hey, we have 10 applicants for this position. And two were really people who were on my leadership team. And I sent all 10 to him and he read every one of them perfectly. And he described that person without seeing them. And I thought, I was trying to catch you. I was trying to prove you wrong somehow. I don't know how you're doing this, but he was so good that it helped. So you do need a Sherpa to help you. Um, so disc assessment is okay, but you also have to look a couple levels deeper into motivators and um, uh, things like that. And, and honestly, I'm not smart enough to do a lot of that. I feel like I'm gaining some knowledge, but getting, a, getting somebody to guide you along is a big thing. And one of the things, Craig, we did really well early on was I actually took all these assessments like I was the perfect person, the perfect project manager, estimator, even painter. And we actually created a benchmark in my company that people can assess against. You know, that's that's really smart. So, Nick, this last section that we're going to get into now, we like to call humor or horror. You know, if you could give me uh, either, a, either a humor story or a horror story about business and something that's went really sideways or maybe a little bit of both, uh, that, that would be great. Before you go, I'll give you one of mine, if that's cool. So you're a very young guy. I, I was, and I was starting out in this business as a painter, and... You know, I work with another gentleman who I'm in touch with still these these days, and you know he's one of those guys who just notoriously could not not put his foot into a bucket of paint. So there's a lid on the ground upside down, he would find it right, like his sneaker would always find its way into that in that lid of paint. And on this particular day, he not only stepped into a gallon lid of paint, but he so he's shoeless, right? So his right foot has no shoe on it. Uh, just a sock, and then he comes off of a five-foot ladder and manages to put his entire right leg into a two-thirds full gallon or five-gallon bucket of of paint. So now our challenge becomes: How do we get him out of this woman's house um, while he's dripping paint off of his leg up to almost his knee? So, you know, we we, we figured it out. We wrapped him up. We got him out of there. But um, in any event, that's my that's my horror story. Yeah, so I can offer you two things. Uh, one, one funny, and then one completely horrifying. Um, I have only told Craig Bunting this story to one other person ever. Uh, Zach Kenny, uh, which we know and love, the famous painter, the famous Instagram painter. And I honestly don't have too many of these crazy stories like this. We, it, it's not because it doesn't happen to us because you know it, they're not as funny as some of the things I hear, but. For some reason, when I was a single owner-operator years ago, this is probably 12 or 13 years ago, I was painting the inside of somebody's great room, big room like that, and it had, you know, some uh, uh, shag carpet, you know, newer shag stuff, the nice stuff. And for some reason, I don't remember all the particulars, but I spilled some paint on the floor, enough where it was a pretty big spot. And I – oh, God, it's hard to say, Craig. I moved a chair over the spot. <laughs> And I, I, and I left it, Craig Bunting. I, I have like 
I have an internal strife about this story because I moved that dang chair over that spot and they sent me a check and they shake my hand and they were so happy with it and they never called me back. And the most baffling thing to me is that for the life of me, people know me. I cannot put myself in the headspace where I would figure, I cannot, I don't know why I made that decision. It's never happened before. It's never happened again. I don't know what was going on in my life at the time, but I moved that dang chair over and I still drive by that house maybe once a month. And it's still, I don't know. I, I would love to go back in and see if that spot's still there. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, that's a sort of funny thing. I still feel bad about it. And, uh, yeah, if they ever called me and asked me, I would hilariously, I would replace the carpet and keep that carpet scrap in my shop as a core value, you know, sort of thing about never again. Uh, the horrifying thing is actually something uh, really interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a true horror, but uh, I had a I had a young person. You know, we have an apprenticeship program where we take a bunch of young people and get them in and introduce them to the trades. And I had somebody who was seventeen years and ten months old. You know, right right before eighteen, they were pressure washing something and they grabbed a muffler uh, instead of the grab bar on a power washer. And very, I mean, first degree burn, not good, but just slight burn on their hand. And of course, whenever any of this happens, first report of injury, take them to the hospital. Well, four months later, uh, the federal government found out about this because a person under the age of 18 was injured, formally injured, and we filed a report as we should have. And that triggered a child labor audit for my entire company for the last decade. And <laughs> it was just, now listen, we had all our paperwork in order. We had all this other stuff. We're not doing anything crazy. But when the federal government comes and sends an auditor to do a child labor audit, I have never been more scared in my entire life, Craig Bunting. <laughs> yeah, whenever I hear federal government, I start to shake. doesn't matter what they're doing. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make me feel good. Okay, so Nick, I, want, I really want to take a moment and thank you. Thank you for not just spending time with me today, but for all you do for the business and, and for the business that you give us. I mean, you're a you're a big fan of our products in many ways, and, and you do a great job talking about them. I want to thank you for that as well. It's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last few years and working with you in, in a variety of ways. I mean, we're, we're not just, you know, colleagues on a, on a, from a business standpoint, but we're also colleagues on a, on a board. And um, I think we both have, you know, uh, equal uh, concerns for the industry and, and wanting it to be to be forwarded and and that kind of thing so thanks so much for your time no and listen first off thank you for scuff x that is a magic paint um <laughs> thank you for your uh thank you for your leadership uh in the industry and with the pca board and thank you for uh just spending time with me since i was a single person painter in the industry like i am legitimately better in this industry because of the time we've spent together and the sort of leadership you've shown me so thank you that's nice of you to say i know you've got a lot on your plate but thanks everything and, and we'll talk soon thanks craig Thanks for listening to this episode of Coverage. If you enjoyed this podcast from Benjamin Moore, be sure to subscribe and share it with other professional painters. Follow us on Instagram at Benjamin Moore Pro. DM us with questions, comments, or future topic suggestions. Let us know if you would be interested in being a guest. This is your podcast, and we want to hear from you. In the meantime, stay busy, and we'll see you on the next episode of Coverage.